The Jotcast. Taking over the world with subliminal messages. With Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Roy Smith. The Jotcast. April 2009 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time is Roy Smith. Hi Roy. Hello Stuart and listeners. And unfortunately, as we said on the last episode of the Jodcast, there is no Nick. Yeah, that is a pity. But he will be back occasionally to, to join us and say hello. Let's hope so. So, coming up in the show this time, we chat about the best astronomical sights and experiences. We talk about what happened during the 100 hours of astronomy at the beginning of April. But first, before all of that, Roy caught up with Brian Wishnam of the Fandrillo College and Coastal Astronomy Society. I'm at Jodl Bank on a beautiful sunny day, and with me is Brian Wushnam, who is a membership secretary and events officer of the Landrillo College and Coastal Astronomy Society. Thank you very much for coming to Jodl Bank. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. So, you're not actually a professional astronomy but you love observing the sky anyway. So what got you started on that? Okay, I first started interested in astronomy in 1969 with watching the Apollo moon landings on the TV. And then about four years later, I used to look at the stars and think, I wonder if it's possible to photograph the night sky. So then I first started using uh, old SLR cameras and ordinary film and doing long-time exposure of the night sky, of constellations and things like that. So what about the night sky is it that you are particularly keen on? What is it that fascinates you? Okay, my main fascination um, is deep sky observing and seeing all these various nebulas, the measure objects, there's 110 of them, globular clusters and, and uh, admission nebulas and things like that. But unfortunately, because of light pollution where I live currently, I now do more with the planets and solar observing. So have you made many pictures? I've got uh, over 3,000 pictures on a, a website of mine, and I've, I've got lots and lots of photographs at home on CDs and hard drives and things like that. And what people say, why do you keep them for so long? But what it is, you improve all the time. New equipment comes out, you find new techniques. So it's, it's a learning, learning curve. And when I actually do lectures, I actually show the pictures that have gone wrong as well as the ones that have gone right, so that you can show people where mistakes can be made. So do you have any specific pictures that are your favourite? Yes, um, I think one of my favourite ones uh, got to be the solar eclipse in Turkey in March 2006 because it's not very often you see a total eclipse of the sun and it was very interesting because we had clear skies all the way through the solar eclipse. I've looked for solar eclipses in the UK um, and you, you always seem to get clouded out. Uh, so do you often travel to make pictures for astronomy? Uh, yes, we, what we do in our astronomy club, we've got close links with the Liverpool Astronomy Society and we go up by Lake Brinig where it's a really dark sky and we usually go up there to do imaging from there. So what kind of work do you do for the Coastal Astronomy Society? It's all voluntary work. I um, first started on the committee in 2001 and before long I took over as membership secretary. I did membership secretary for a couple of years then actually had to go up being chairman for a year. And then um, I went back down to be membership again, secretary again, because you can only do chairman for one year. And I do the membership secretary's job, and I do all the events, arranging events at the college, big lecture room. We have a, an event every month, and we get guest speakers to come look along. Do you have any events planned for the coming year, as it is an international year of astronomy? Yes, we've got lots of interesting events for the International Year of Astronomy. On the 22nd of April, 
there's a lecture at the Clancyville College um, lecture room by the public library, and I'm actually doing a talk about solar observing, how how to observe the sun through a personal solar telescope, and also uh, solar eclipses, various types of ways of observing the sun, projection and things like that. And then we've got another lecture on the 20th of May, which is Steve Reed from our astronomy club. He has his own observatory, and in the last 12 months, he's got into more into deep sky observing using triple colour. Uh, astronomy um, using different coloured filters. That's a new technique that's come out. Then on the 24th of June we've got a really good interesting lecture from a gentleman called Rob Johnson from Liverpool Astronomy Society. He's been doing astrophotography for years with old 35mm cameras and he's actually coming to talk on the modern way of doing astrophotography uh, and imaging using webcams and the modern digital SLR cameras. After that we've got our star party which is on Saturday the 13th of September and that's held on a, uh, a local farmer's land which is away from all light pollution he's actually a member of our society and uh, he's allowing us to use his land for two days then on the 20th of September we've got another open day up at Lake Brinig which is open is open all day to the general public and there's going to be solar scopes set up and in the evening we'll be allowing people to look at the moon there's another event that's pending the date's not finalized yet and that is um, taking a 16-inch dob to the summit of Snowdon and holding a star party up there. Um, we're just waiting for clarification on the date from the, the Llanberis Mountain Rescue Team. Um, and what they're allowing us to do is to use the cafe overnight as a base. And we can do lectures in there at night and, and we can actually sleep there overnight and come down the following day. So, so you're going to take the equipment to the top of Snowdon? Yes, the, the, the big Dobsonian telescope will go down in the chairman's uh, Ford Transit van to Clamberis uh, and then it will be put into one of the coaches of the train and then it will be chunted up to the top of Snowden. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. We, we, we didn't know whether we'd be able to get this event off the ground, but they're really, really keen. It's just a matter of uh, finalising the date. So that's a really good opportunity for people to come along and view from the summit of Snowden, the highest peak in Wales. Then we go into October... And there's a gentleman coming on the Wednesday the 21st of October. He's coming to do a lecture about time. A gentleman called Paul Braid from our astronomy club is going to talk about time, which is quite a big subject. We haven't really got any major events after that, but we do have the Tuesday night. The second Tuesday every month we meet in Tlanelian near Colwyn Bay, and it's our observation night, and that's a great opportunity for people that are just starting off because it's hands-on, uh, you come along, you pay a pound to come in, and we have, and if it's a clear sky, we have telescopes set up outside, and people can look through telescopes, look through binoculars, if they're not sure what type of telescope to buy, they can ask us for advice, have a look through a telescope, and then make the decision whether astronomy is for them or not. Anybody can participate in these events? Yeah, anyone can come along, yeah, there's no charge, it's all free, it's all the part of the International Year of Astronomy. Do we have a website where people can uh, read about this? Yes, um, the easiest way to find the website, it's with the Federation of Astronomical Societies Northwest Group. Rather than give people the long name, what we do is if you, do, you go into the internet and do a search engine and just type in NWGAS and we always say to people, North Wales Gas. And if you type that in, it comes up with North Wales Group of Astronomical Societies and then it shows you a map of all the uh, uh, local astronomy societies in the area. And if you just click on the Clanrithlow one, it takes you straight into, the, into what's happening. So for this occasion, we will put a, a link on our website as well. Okay, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. So how old is this society? The society started in uh, April 2001. So we, we've been now been going for eight years. It first started because we had a gentleman working at the college who was an astronomer as well. And he, he had an observatory and everything. And he was a lecturer 
on, on the GCSE astronomy course at the college. And the first and second year students got together and they wanted to form a society. So um, this gentleman, Dave Jackson, came to see me and he said, I know you're into astronomy, you've been doing it for years. Would you like to come and help me to get the committee off the ground? So he was the chairman the first year and we got it off the ground. And into the second year, we had 86 members. You do get people that come along and then they find it's not what they thought it was going to be and they, they leave. But uh, we have a constant 43 members now. Um, whether we'll get more this year with the International Year of Astronomy, I don't know. But the good thing is with our Astronomy Society, um, children can join under the age of 16 and we only charge them a pound for membership for a whole year. So that's quite a good price, really. So you're a very active society. But I understand you also write a monthly astronomy section for a local newspaper. So what do you typically write about? What I basically do is um, I, I tell people everything what's happening in the next the month ahead coming along. So what I do is I tell them the general things about what constellations to look for, the phase of the moon and things like that, all the, the events that are happening in our local astronomy society. But then if a like list last month, we had a comet that came over. So I, I notify people about meteor showers, look out for the comet, where's the best place to go and see it, and things like that. Okay. So it's really, really interesting. I understand you're also quite keen on reading books about astronomy. Do you have many books? Yes, um, I've got 143 in total. Uh, I've now told people when, on my birthday and for Christmas, don't buy me any more astronomy <laughs> books because, um, um, you know, unless it's something that's new, it's come out. But um, I've got 143 astronomy books. I first started reading astronomy books when I was 10 years old. Uh, my parents used to say to me, what do you want for Christmas? Would you like a Blue Peter Annual or something like that? And I say, no, I want a book by Sir Patrick Moore. <laughs> so um, I've actually got 43 uh, astronomy books by Sir Patrick Moore. I've got a big collection there. And I've also got lots of DVDs on astronomy as well because they're handy to use for events. But uh, the, these books I've read over the years and then I, I go back and read them again, you know, because it's interesting how things change. Is there any specific book you would like to advise to the listeners to read? There's a, quite a few good ones out. Uh, one of the best ones I've ever read is the autobiography by Sir Patrick Moore called 80 Not Out. And that basically tells you all about Sir Patrick Moore when he first started in astronomy, what type of telescopes he used and all the trips he's been on, solar eclipses and things that have occurred over the years. That's a really good book. Another book that I found very interesting was a book called Moon Dust. And that's a book about all the astronauts, Apollo astronauts went to the moon and how their lives have changed from went before they went to the moon and afterwards. But for people who want to start off in astronomy, you usually find that um, the Phillips range of books are really, really good because they'll tell you the basics, how to observe the night sky, how to work out light, how, dis how far they are in light distances and things like that. Because people, what people tend to do these days is they go out, they rush out and buy a telescope. But when I first started astronomy, you had to be able to what they call star hop. So you had to physically work out to recognize the constellations. So you'd start off with a pair of binoculars, go out each night and get to know a certain constellation and learn it that way. But these days people buy these automatic telescopes that you just pull a line and do a two-star alignment and then it just finds things for you, which is it's not really, to me, it's not really astronomy because you should be able to work it out scientifically, really. It's sort of cheating when you use those, but... Uh, I suppose it's just the modern way of doing things because you can buy. I also say to people, they come to the astronomy club and they'll say, what type of telescope shall I buy? Now, they might pay £800 for a telescope that's really, really small aperture, four inch. But because it's got the computer system on, they're not getting the aperture. So that telescope isn't going to show them as much as you for that money. You could buy a really big 
8 inch reflector and you'd see more detail in the structure of these deep sky objects so it's it's just you know it's better to learn rather than rush into it to get yourself into to familiarize yourself with the night sky another good book that I've read is observing the night sky with binoculars by Sir Patrick Moore that's a really good book that's starting from basics so if people want to get into astronomy I recommend they do that they're very fortunate these days because a lot of computerized software that will navigate the night sky for you but one of the best things to purchase is a thing called a planisphere and what that is it's a rotating disc and you can set it up for any day of the year and it'll navigate the night sky for you and you can work out exactly where all the constellations are but if you look on the back of it it tells you the position of planets and you can work out where the planets are amongst the constellations and I think that's really important that people should do it that way to identify things. That's some great advice. So obviously you've spent a whole lot of time in your life on astronomy. Uh, do we have any future plans? Yes. I've just built myself a nice little solar observatory. It's only, uh, it might sound a bit strange to people, but it's a six by four shed that I bought um, from B&Q a couple of years ago. And I used to keep my mountain bike in there, but I've got that somewhere else. And last year, um, I took up um, solar observing a hydrogen alpha telescope. It was my 50th birthday, so people chipped in and bought me this telescope because I've always wanted one. And what I found last year is totally di different to observing at night. Now, the good thing about observing during the day, you don't have to worry about light pollution. You don't have to worry about staying up late. Now then, where the downside comes down, at night you're observing it's cold, you've got to wrap up. It's the opposite during the day. And if you're not careful, you, I actually did get sunburnt last year. I was observing, I got carried away observing, and I got sunburnt at the back of my neck, so it's important that you cover yourself up. But one of the things I, I didn't realise at the time was, I use a laptop computer, and I capture images using a two-cam camera, which is like um, a webcam, and you catch hundreds of frames and build up a picture. And what happens is, you've got your laptop outside, and the sun is so bright, it's hitting the screen, you can't see the screen very well, so it's hard for you to focus on the prominences coming off the edge of the sun or the structure within the sun. And what you tend to do is you might turn the brightness up on the actual camera. And then when you go in to, to process your images, they're overexposed. So last year what I did was I made a little box, which the laptop goes into, and then it shelters the sun off it. But what I've done this year to make it more convenient for myself is if I wait to midday... It's ideal for me to get the sun over the top of the houses where I live and I can follow it uh, later on in the year. It, it, obviously, the sun goes to a higher altitude. So between May and September, I can even get it when I come home from work in the evening time, spend an hour or so catching some images. So what I've done is I've made a 6 by 4 shed and I've attached um, dark material on the inside to make it completely blacked out drilled a small hole where the door goes through so the USB cable can go through and built a little shelf so my laptop can go inside there. I can put my solar telescope tracking on the sun, shut the door, and then I can just go in and work in the dark. So I'm looking forward to using that. And then my next thing I want to do is have an observatory. Now, Diane and I haven't got a place of our own yet, but we're hoping to get a place in the next couple of years. And I was thinking about building an observatory with a dome but I've been thinking about it because I've heard that quite a few people have been unfortunate where if you've got a dome in your garden and people can see it it can attract the wrong type of people what, what kind of people dishonest people really where they'll think oh 
that there's a dome in that garden, there must be something worth pinching in there, or, you know, curiosity or whatever. So it's just the small majority of people who would do that, but I have known people that have had break-ins, telescopes have been stolen. So I've come up with the idea, um, after going to Sir Patrick Moore's house, of having a runoff shed observatory. Because if you've got the shed in the garden, it just looks like an ordinary shed. And then you just roll the roof back, and then you um, the night sky is visible to your telescope. So I've got a nice telescope in the house that I haven't used for a while. It's a big 10-inch reflector, F4 focal ratio, which means it's really good for deep sky work. And I've got a nice mount there as well, which uh, I bought second-hand off somebody for the future. Once I get the observatory built, I will have the, a central pillar in the middle of the observatory, have the head of the mount on the top, and then this big 10-inch scope will go on top. That's what I'm looking forward to. I keep saying I'm going to do it. I was going to do it by the time I'm 50, but I haven't quite managed that, so I've got the solar observatory instead. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with uh, accomplishing that. And it's been wonderful talking to somebody who's so keen on astronomy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, thanks for that, Roy. And Brian just asked me to clarify that all the International Year of Astronomy events are free of charge. The monthly observation night costs just £1 for the general public, and the lecture nights cost £3. So no excuse not to go there. And now let's talk about the success of 100 hours of astronomy talked about it so much and now we finally had it we have and it's it's finished and there's lots of people around the world who are now getting some sleep to recover from the amazing four days worth of astronomy internationally well-deserved sleep i would say it's definitely well-deserved sleep there have been plenty of events all over the world it started at a museum in pennsylvania where the opening ceremony took place and then on the friday morning we had the 24-hour observatory webcast that was called eight around the world in 80 telescopes right. and we talked to douglas pierce price about that yes. um, previously and that was an amazing 24 hours of webcasts. You can still watch them after the event if you missed them live. They were all archived and you can get to them on the 100 Hours of Astronomy website. Um, Jodrell took part in that. We were there until we froze near the very end of Something our went video. wrong? Um, yes, a, a cable became disconnected during the middle of it, but that's live live <laughs> webcasting for you. Yeah. Um, but we still managed to keep the audio going, so we were able to continue our segment just before the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay, very good. That was quite an amazing tour of global observatories, um, visiting every continent on the Earth, including Antarctica, which was fairly impressive. That was a really great success. That's fantastic. And as I said, you can go and see those in the archives. And then on the following day, on the Saturday, we had a 24-hour global star party. And I've heard reports from all over the world, from places like the United Arab Emirates, the Philippines, the US, Romania, Uruguay, Iran, um, New Zealand, Brazil. It seems that the whole world was, was taking part in Gujarat in India, there was a camel cart which took a, an exhibition of astronomy carted around by a camel um, to all the people in the, the local community. And Fantastic. so they got to observe the sun with safe solar viewers and things. It really was a global effort, wasn't it? It was. When you start to see the reports coming in and the sort of photographs of events, so you've got people all over the world looking through telescopes at almost the same time, on the same day. Yeah. It was an Im impressive event. And they even had good weather at Jodrell Bank now. Yes, we, we had our Moonwatch event, because in the UK we had a week instead of just 100 hours, because we didn't think the weather would hold out. Yes. And on the Saturday we, we had a Moonwatch event as part of the 100 hours of astronomy at Jodrell. And quite a few people turned up. In fact, three Jodcast listeners were there. So, hello to all of them. Um, one of them was Jamex, or Jamie Lovelock from the forum. Mm. So let us know how it was. Well, I think they already did, didn't they? 
Yeah, so it, it was really good to, to meet Jodcast listeners <laughs> at Jodrell Bank. During the 24-hour global star party, there were webcasts from amateur astronomy clubs as well, and they were quite fun to, to go along and watch. And um, one that I took part in was given by an astronomical society in Wichita in Kansas, and they had a webcam and they were showing us their telescopes. They even held the webcam up to the eyepiece of the telescope, which was quite amazing <laughs> yeah, um, to take part in. And there were several other webcasts from people in the Netherlands and other parts of the US and other parts of the world, including one from south of Rome at the Bellatrix Observatory, where they were doing live observing with a nice telescope and camera. Mm. And so that was fun. The the host, Gianluca Massi, was, was taking requests like some kind of astronomical DJ. And people saying, I want to look at this object. And then he would slew his telescope over. And it was great fun. Excellent. Have we now doubled the number of astronomers in this world? I don't know. We'll have to wait to see what the yeah. numbers turn out to we be. We haven't seen the numbers yet. No. And I suspect it'll be quite a lot. Yes. Then on the Sunday, it was Sunday, people were encouraged all around the world to view our nearest star, the Sun, safely, with a solar telescope or a, a projection. projection. Yeah. Um, so that was great fun. I took a small solar telescope out into the middle of Manchester and was was encouraging as many people as possible to look through a solar telescope. Right. Yeah, you tell people not to look directly to the sun with a telescope, right? Yes, we started with the health and safety warnings about how dangerous it is to normally look through a telescope or binoculars or exactly. even with the unaided eye at the sun. Yes, there was a special was safety observe. Yep. So anyway, congratulations to the many people all over the world who organised events locally to them and helped many people observe the stars for the first time. And I'm sure all this wonderful astronomy leads to many questions in people's minds. And if you have any questions or any remarks about astronomy, you can send them to us through our website to Ask an Astronomer, and we will try to answer those questions. And with questions that have already arrived at Jodcast HQ, here's Roy and Dr. Tim O'Brien. In the Jodcast studio, we have our very own Tim O'Brien, and he will answer some of your burning questions. So one question is from Nick Johnson, and he says, I have understood that black holes grow relative to the amount of material that they consume. If, though, all the material going into a black hole is compressed to a singularity, what process is making the black hole increase in size? Okay, well, it's a good question. I mean, he, he's right, of course, that, that black holes do grow when they consume material. And he might be right, of course, that the, maybe the materials are compressed into a singularity. The, the trouble is, we, of course, we can't see inside a black hole, so we're not sure what happens to stuff when it, when it disappears inside the black hole. We don't know of any force that would stop it all being compressed into a singularity, so maybe right. we'll assume that's the case, but mm-hmm. we don't really like infinities in physics, so maybe something else happens, but anyway. <laughs> to answer his question, um, the crucial thing is that what determines the size of a black hole, when we talk about the size of a black hole, there's two things really there that, that are often confused, and one would be the mass of a black hole, uh, and one would be its sort of physical size, its diameter, if you were to measure it. Now, it's sort of easy to understand what we mean by mass. You add more mass to it, add another 10 kilograms, it's 10 kilograms more in mass. It's right. relatively straightforward. But the size is a different thing. The way we define the size of a black hole um, is by uh, the point at which um, nothing can escape from the black hole. So if you imagine getting closer and closer to a black hole, um, the force of gravity increases and increases as you get closer to it, to the point at which the speed at which you'd have to travel in order to escape the gravity of the black hole becomes greater than the speed of light. At that point, where where, where that escape velocity is equal to the speed of light, uh, we call that point the event horizon. 
Um, and the, the distance, between, if it was a spherical black hole, if this was all nice and symmetrical, um, we'd have a sphere. The radius of that sphere uh, out to the event horizon, from the singularity to the event horizon, is called the Schwarzschild radius. Um, so in fact, relatively simple physics lets us calculate the radius, the Schwarzschild radius. It turns out to be equal to 2 times g m over c squared. So G is the GS, yes. yeah G is the gravitational constant. Mm-hmm. So it's um, capital G, capital G. That's right. M is the mass of the black hole, and C is the speed of light. So right. two G M over C squared. So if you go look up the value for the gravitational constant, you can substitute in some numbers. And having done that already, um, I can sort of uh, ex- tell you what 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 would happen. For example, if we took the Earth, if we could take the Earth and we could squash it down in size. Um, the force of gravity at the surface of the Earth would, would increase. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can imagine the Earth shrinking, the force, we'd be closer to the centre of the Earth, so the force of gravity would be greater. If we could keep squeezing the Earth down and down and down, when we, if we got it down to a radius of about one centimetre, uh, just a little less than one centimetre, then it would be a black hole. Right. That's, so the event horizon, the Schwarzschild radius for an Earth mass object is about one centimetre. For the Sun, it's about three kilometres, so you'd have to squeeze the sun down to about a radius of about three kilometres. Uh, and you can go up in mass and you can think, OK, well, these are quite small things, really, so, you know, how, how big can we get? Well, one of the, the, the biggest sorts of black holes that we, we think we know about are the centres of galaxies. Typically, we think they're, they're maybe range between about a million and a hundred million times the mass of the mm-hmm. sun. Um, and so there, there, there you're talking about Schwarzschild radii of something like um, a million to a hundred million kilometers. Right. Now, in fact, you know, it sounds a lot, but then if you think about it on the scale of the solar system, the distance between the Earth and the sun is about 150 million kilometers. So, in fact, the, 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 you know, the size of the black hole in terms of its event horizon uh, these giant black holes, these supermassive black holes at the cores of galaxies, actually slightly smaller than the size of the Earth's orbit around the Sun, or are of the same order. Okay. So it's the escape, when the escape velocity is the speed of light, determines the size, the event horizon of a black hole, basically. That's right. So, so basically, yep, they, they, are, they are increasing in size as they increase in mass, and it's the event horizons that's working its way out. So John Edge found something very interesting in the BBC series Robin Hood on the episode called Total Eclipse. So he noticed that a few minutes after the eclipse occurs, Robin is standing on the castle walls talking about freedom, etc. And behind him is the blue sky and a moon clearly roughly at half moon. Now, that doesn't sound very consistent with having a total eclipse just a few minutes before, does it? No, that's right. I mean, it's a, of course, it's, it's a good example of bad astronomy. There's lots of them out there. Um, and, of course, the point is that um, if there's a total eclipse, the moon passes in front of the sun. The moon's, um, I mean, about the same angular diameter as the sun in the sky, so they both um, are about half a degree across, coincidentally. So if the moon happens to pass in front of the sun, then it more or less exactly blocks it out and you get this you know, wonderful thing, a total eclipse. But of course, you know, it's it's very slowly moving across the face of the sun, you know, so um, a few minutes after or half an hour after or whatever in, in this particular Robin Hood episode, then yeah, you, the moon would still be very close to the sun in the sky. Uh, it would be what we call a new moon, um, so almost invisible really, because it's basically lit from the back. The sun's much farther away, it lights it from the other side, but it's still very close to the sun on the sky, so there's no way you'd have seen a half moon. It would have been something like um, half the the lunar cycle later mm-hmm. um, before it's on the other side of the sky so well, that's that would make days. it a full moon mm-hmm. um, so he said he saw a half moon so it must that would have happened about a week after the eclipse right. not, okay. not half an hour after the eclipse <laughs> yes. 
Well spotted, John. Thank you very much. And Andrea Ashworth is wondering about the difference between dark matter and dark energy. What is exactly the difference? And she's suggesting, is it perhaps the same thing? Well, no, definitely not the same thing. So, um, I mean, what's, I guess, where, where the confusion arises, it's simply because we had to think of a name for these things that we don't understand. Um, and perhaps if we do it in historical terms, we, 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 we came up with the term dark matter before we came up with the term dark energy. So let's look at dark matter first. Um, probably um, uh, one of the best pieces of evidence for dark matter was that when, when people were measuring the, um, the motion of stars or gas clouds as they orbit a galaxy, um, so, so our galaxy, for example, is spinning, and the disk of the Milky Way is spinning. Um, it takes us about 200 million years or so for the sun to go all the way around the Milky Way. And we can measure the speeds at which things are moving around the galaxy. And basically that speed is determined by the mass of the galaxy. So just like the speed of the Earth's orbit around the sun, or say the moons of Jupiter around Jupiter, those speeds are determined by the mass of the object that they are, they are circling, that they are orbiting. Those are the laws of Kepler, right? That's Kepler's laws, indeed. So it's, so it's, um, it was, it's been known about for, for many, many years. So people were trying to measure where galaxies, measure the mass of galaxies, by measuring the speeds at which these gas clouds were orbiting them. And it was actually realised that as you went to farther and f gas clouds that were farther and farther and farther away from the middle of the galaxy, what should happen, according to Kepler's laws, would be that the speed at which the gas cloud was orbiting would drop off um, because the force of gravity was getting weaker. Um, and in fact, it turned out when these measurements were made that in many cases it didn't drop off at all. It stayed roughly constant. Uh, even when the gas cloud was was way beyond the most of the visible mass of the galaxy, so it and really should have been slowing down by then, and it just and it just wasn't. So what it was the the, the implication was that there was lots of material with mass extending well out beyond the, the visible mass of the galaxy that was increasing the gravitational pull and causing these galaxies to be circling faster than we would have otherwise expected. So it was matter that was dark. It was not producing any radiation at any wavelength that we can see. Otherwise we would have seen it already. We'd have seen it, it would have been visible light or it would have been radio waves or it would have been x-rays or whatever. We just couldn't, it appeared to be, it was literally invisible, there was no radiation coming off it, but it had mass because it had gravity and we were seeing its effect through gravity. So it's dubbed dark matter, known about for, for a long time now. Um, we still don't know what it is and we still believe it's out there. Best guess is that it's some sort of, uh, you know, subatomic particle that has, remains to be, remains to be discovered. Now, dark energy is a more recent phenomenon. So, so in fact, this was, um, this, this name arose about 10 years ago now, um, when a rather startling observation was made, um, ever since we first discovered that the universe was expanding. So back in the 1920s, Hubble and collaborators measured the speeds at which distant galaxies were moving away from the, uh, the Milky Way. In fact, they were all moving away if you went far enough out in the universe. And they realised that, that meant the universe was expanding. Ever since then, we'd assumed, or one of the big questions in cosmology was, can we weigh all the galaxies that there are? Can we measure their mass to determine how much mass there is in the universe to work out if the force of gravity between the galaxies would be sufficient to overcome that expansion such that at some distant point in the future maybe that expansion would even stop and perhaps lead to a recollapse and maybe a big crunch at some point in the future following the Big Bang. So basically we, we, we knew that the universe must be slowing down in its expansion. The gravity was bound to be pulling the universe back together and, and so this expansion must have been gradually slowing down. The real question was, was it slowing down enough to cause a collapse or not? 
the really startling thing that was discovered in 1998 with observations of distant supernovae was that it appears that the universe isn't slowing down in its expansion at all, it's accelerating. And that was like, you know, it's mad, you know, it's mad physics. It's sort of, you know, shouldn't have been happening. <laughs> Clearly gravity should have been pulling these things back together, but in fact they were shooting apart. And uh, it's like anti-gravity. Mm -hmm. Now, we couldn't call it anti-gravity, that would sound unscientific, so we had to have a new name, and I guess the fact that we had a name called Dark Matter um, just led to the name Dark Energy. Right. So it was some form of unknown energy in the universe, um, maybe we still don't know what it is, something that causes this sort of exp uni the universe space to expand even faster and faster and faster. So they're, they're different things. Um, the, 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 the linking thing is we don't know what they are. <laughs> so, so in fact, it turns out, you know, recent observations of the cosmic microwave background, for example, um, show us that something like, um, the, the normal matter, the stuff that we understand, you know, the protons, the electrons, the things that we're made of that you can, you know, bang this table and you, you, you feel that sort of stuff, um, makes up probably only about 4% of the, the mass energy content, um, mass and energy being equivalent according to Einstein. Um, Dark matter makes up something like, I don't know, 20-odd 20, 20 percent of that, mm -hmm. uh, of the universe, and uh, and dark energy, the remainder, maybe 70 percent or so of the, of, of the day. So, so in fact, we only understand about 4 percent of the universe at all. And which the rest is we can't see. And the rest we can't see, and we, you know, we, we can surmise, you know, we think it's, we can see that there's something there, mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, it, it sounds like we've not made, it sounds like we're going backwards, but in fact it's not true, we're always making progress. But it's often the case that when you, you know, you answer one question, you open up several more questions to be, to, to, to be answered. And, and this is an example of it. Yeah. So would you think that dark energy and dark matter, as Andrea puts it here, mm. are just two phenomena used as an excuse for inadequate and inaccurate physics? <laughs> um, I think that's, I think that's a bit harsh. <laughs> um, I think, I think, no, I think what we've done is we've made observations. We compare them to our, the current level of our understanding of physics. Um, and we, and we see where there are discrepancies. And, and clearly there's a discrepancy, you know, in the sense that in the case of dark matter, the behavior of these orbiting clouds of gas is different than you'd expect for simple, uh, Keplerian, uh, motion if you could see all the mass that was there. So the simple solution is that there's some mass there that you can't see. Now a radical solution is that actually our understanding of gravity as expressed in Kepler's laws is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we have to change our physics. And maybe that will, maybe that will turn out to be the case. And it's certainly a possibility that people explore and, and, and is seriously considered. Um, so you try to keep an open mind. Um, and, and if there's new physics needed, then, then, it, then I'm, I'm sure it'll arise. Okay. Well, that's very clear. Uh, thank you very much for answering those questions, Tim. No problem. Thanks for that, Roy and Tim. And if you have any questions or remarks about bad astronomy that you see, then please send them in to us at the Jodcast via the website at jodcast.net. Now, with all this talk of 100 hours of astronomy and people seeing through telescopes for the first time, we thought we'd put together a list of the best astronomical things that you could do. And so we've got a few suggestions. We'd encourage listeners to add their own comments on the show notes on the website. If you have, if you think that our suggestions are, are ridiculous or you have any better ones, then please do add them there. So Roy, I'll let you start off. What would come in your top ten list? Well, one, a few things that, um, person should absolutely have done in astronomy. The first thing I would think is have a look at the sun by a proper filter, like an H alpha filter, and have a look at the sunspots on the surface of the sun. They're absolutely beautiful to look at, especially if it's a very active sun. 
which unfortunately at the moment it's not. We're in quite a quiet period of the sun. That's true. It's actually a very long minimum where we are at the moment. And as far as I know, there's still no sunspots visible. But in the coming years, you'll get some spots. They move around. They come and go. It's wonderful to keep track of those. Many people do that. It's actually very useful science as well. It's very simple. You don't need much for it. And I think it's just fantastic for people to do that. You can also see the prominence. So these are large solar flares extending far away from the sun uh, that you can see f- by one of these filters. And it's a fantastic sight to look at that. They are. And if you don't have your own H-Alpha telescope, then your local astronomical society might have one. So if you find them and go along, they might be able to help you out. I would also say for people, at least once, to sleep under an open sky. Mm. Without a tent. I probably can't do it in the UK, though, not many days. <laughs> but if you're in a warm country, uh, like Australia, for example... Just go out and sleep under the open sky when you have a beautiful sky, lots of stars. Uh, That's just a fantastic experience. And, of course, to visit the major telescopes around the world. There's, of course, a Lovell telescope at Jodwell Bank, uh, but there's other telescopes as well. Effelsberg has a 100-meter radio dish. Uh, Green Bank in America has a 105-meter dish. And they have an excellent visitor center as well. And quite a lot of the world's large telescopes or observatories have visitor centres for the public to to get up close. My first thing would be to observe Saturn through a telescope. And again, it's one of those things that this year isn't quite the best to observe Saturn through a telescope because we're seeing the rings edge on. If anyone's been paying attention to Ian Morrison in the Night Sky segment, you'll, you'll know that. But when you see Saturn through a telescope with your own eyes, there's something magical about that that you don't get from looking in books or at Hubble Space Telescope pictures, just being able to have the photons of light directly hitting your the back of your retina is just a great thing. So that that would be on, on my list. Also things like visiting the Prime Meridian, so going to Greenwich, where Greenwich Mean Time is based, mm-hmm. and in fact the world's first time zone was created in 1847, so you stand at the zero of longitude. It's also beautiful to stay in the evening because there's a laser that's pointing directly across the meridian. There is a green laser that fires out um, over central London. That's absolutely beautiful to watch. And they also have an excellent planetarium, as people who've been watching the video Jodcast will know. Now, also, a few other observing feats that I think people should do. One is to see a total solar eclipse. I have failed in that as well. I tried to see the one from Cornwall in 1999, but once again was foiled by clouds. Yes. I've never seen a total eclipse, sadly. I've seen right. uh, 98% eclipse was the closest I've seen. Um, that was from part of the Netherlands. It was very close to complete. Right. And a lunar eclipse as well. Uh, might, you know, it's not as beautiful as a solar eclipse, but it is still a fantastic uh, sight. Yeah, and especially if you get um, a time when there's lots of dust in the Earth's atmosphere and you yes. get a, a very red-coloured moon. Exactly, that's beautiful to look at. And now for some slightly harder things to do, I would say one would be to winter over in Antarctica. Or the North Pole, but there's less land, so it's a bit harder. Um, and just to see the night sky. Um, you want to stay there for half a year? That's, that's hard to, hard to reach. It's, it's hard to reach, and not many people get that, that opportunity, but you get some of the clearest skies on the planet. Another thing which is harder to do is to have an asteroid or comet named after you. That seems like very difficult, uh, a very difficult thing to achieve. But it's something that is attainable for amateur astronomers. If you discover a comet, you get it to be named after you. And for asteroids, if you do something important in astronomy, or even culturally, you can get get your name on an asteroid. Your own asteroid. Your very own asteroid. Fantastic. And, in fact, we know... One person 
Professor Ian Morrison. He has an asteroid named after him, asteroid Ian Morrison. So when we talk about Ian Morrison, you never know who we refer to. Maybe it's the asteroid. It could be. So that's the list of things that Roy and I think would be good to see, or things that you could do. Um, And if you have any suggestions of your own, things that we've omitted, then please let us know by leaving a comment on the show notes on the website at jodcast.net. And now we can go to our listener feedback. So we have email feedback from Andrew Thompson, Mark A. Paris, and Philip Lurish with some wonderful comments. Thank you very much for those. And on iTunes, we had reviews from Nick Johnson and Great Old Mac. And on Facebook, John Van Houten is wondering what happened to his question about interferometry a long time ago. Nick mentioned it would be answered in the Ask an Astronomer of the Mid-December show, but there was no Ask an Astronomer in the Mid-December show. So, so sadly, we couldn't get it into this episode either, but we'll put it on the list for the next episode. And on the forum, we have a discussion about 100 hours of astronomy events. All the results are slowly coming in. And send us your experience on the events that you participated in. Megan told us about some of the events she was involved with in Perth, which sounded quite exciting. I think she got to dress up as a pirate as well. She did indeed, yes. Sounds very exciting. So if you have any comments, you can always send them via the website at www.jodcast.net. So you can leave your feedback on the forum, forum forum.jodcast.net. You can send us a tweet at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or visit Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And of course there's our video channel on youtube.com slash jodcast. Or leave your comments on iTunes. So that was the April Extra Edition. Very many thanks to Brian Woosnam and Tim O'Brien. Until next time, jod on. <laughs>